So a lot of people think of mental health only in the context of a psychiatric disorder. So you've been diagnosed with depression, you've been diagnosed with anxiety. But the truth is, good mental health is being able to manage the day-to-day stressors. Because the truth is, life can be stressful. Welcome to the What Next Podcast, hosted by Sean Reed, where we pay it forward through conversations. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey to discover what's next for you. Michelle? Yes? <laughs> She's like, yes? <laughs> <laughs> How is your mental health today? How is my mental health today? Today was a rough mental health day. I had to pour a lot out. So I need to focus on filling myself back up. <laughs> That's the truth. So is it that every time you have a rough day, you do something specifically to try to correct, fix, build back? Um, I've gotten better with it. Maybe not every day, but I've definitely gotten better with it. So recognizing when I'm done, signing off for the day, taking more time for myself but i wasn't always good at it <laughs> wasn't always good at it and it's still a work in progress i think that most of us unfortunately we don't speak we don't speak about mental health we don't think about it you know so we have a long rough day and we may go to the wrong things to calm down so we're drinking or cuss off somebody or whatever the case is i would don't take the time necessary to to fix ourselves to help ourselves and I think part of it is how people think of mental health. So a lot of people think of mental health only in the context of a psychiatric disorder. So you've been diagnosed with depression, you've been diagnosed with anxiety. But the truth is good mental health is being able to manage the day-to-day stressors because the truth is life can be stressful. Um, take driving on the road. You go on the road for an hour. You may have had a number of close calls. You may have had an incident of road rage or you may have been stuck in traffic and you get home and you're exhausted and you have to help children with homework, you have to cook dinner, you have to clean the house. And people think of that as just life. But the truth is your ability to cope with those stressors take some time to kind of process, breathe, relax, and then start again is all about your mental health. So it's not just absence of disorders. It's just having coping strategies, a social support network, access to resources, and so forth. It's funny you say that because somebody recently was questioning why did I ask everybody about their mental health, saying that I am diminishing the severity of like clinical depression and clinical mental issues. And I said to them that, you know, no, I'm not. I just want people to realize that the same way we care about physical health, we should care about mental health the exact same way. And it, the, the same kind of concern, same kind of attention should be placed on it. That doesn't diminish the clinical serious issues the same way. Mm-hmm. The same way having a headache and taking a Tylenol doesn't change the fact that cancer is a serious thing. But you're right. addressing each problem or each symptom of something. It's actually funny you say that. Um because a lot of times someone says, how are you? And the immediate response is, I'm fine, or I'm okay, or I'm all right. Like we don't even think about it. It's become automatic. When the truth is, there could be so many things going on. You may not be okay. Um, so doing a little 
we call it a check-in, you yeah. know, a check-in. I do it before trainings. I may do it with a group of young people. We do a check-in. Where are you at? Because it tells you maybe they'll need a little bit more support getting through a certain task. Maybe the timing of an, a task is not the best time. Maybe they need some time to kind of break. But also asking someone about their mental health kind of opens the door to have a real conversation. And I think in COVID, I appreciate when somebody says, how are you? Because it has been a stressful two and a half years. Yeah, <laughs> it really has been yeah. a stressful two and a half years. Yeah. Um, I was thinking the other day that every year, you know, I do an executive profile. Mm-hmm. And they check physical stuff of my body. But they should actually ask me, are you mentally okay? Because I think that being physically okay and being clear to be physically okay if I'm mentally unstable, the other physical goes out the door. It, you're, you're actually right. So we, the way the language is changing, there is a lot of talk about health and wellness. Mm-hmm. So even our ministry changed from just the Ministry of Health to the Ministry of Health and Wellness. And sometimes, even though we know about the mind-body connection and we read about it and we hear about it, we sometimes think, you know, Physical health is the most important, not realizing that mental and emotional health can affect us physically, like it's an actual physiological reaction when we're exposed to stress. And that causes damage to our thinking processes or emotional processes, and it affects our health. If you're stressed, you're more likely to get sick. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, I, I was actually impressed that that's what you asked. How is your mental health? Because I think people need to feel comfortable just saying it's okay not to be okay and also recognizing how important it is. Um, so I know that you have no idea what you're doing now. <laughs> but I know I dabble in psychology and helping people mentally. <laughs> yeah, so forgive me, right? So <laughs> explain to me what you do and, and how you help people. Oh, I'm also a lead trainer in psychological first aid. What that is, it's the mental health equivalent of medical first aid. So you know with medical first aid, you're able to respond to a medical emergency until the paramedics, the doctors, um, and so forth can arrive. Psychological first aid is the mental health equivalent of that. So it allows persons to do three things. Recognize when someone is in a crisis, respond in a way that provides immediate support and facilitates referral to relevant services and supports. And the reason why it's such an effective tool or an effective framework to operate under is that anybody can do it. And the truth is crises can happen at the drop of a hat. And there are not enough professionals to be everywhere every day, all day. So this allows persons to have sufficient skills and resources to recognize, respond, and refer. So I've been training organizations at the community and state level for about four years now. But I really feel as if psychological first aid, everybody needs it. Every company should have it. Everybody, every company should have person or persons trained to deal with that because we don't. I, I shout that from, 
from the rooftops, even even as a psychologist. Like, and I really, I was really excited when I saw that Jam Psych, the Psychological Association um, in Jamaica, one of their professional development curriculum or seminars is psychological first aid. And I was like, yes, they get it. Even we need it because it really, it's such a, it's such a good way of just interacting with people. So someone who is running a call center, when you think about it, these persons are listening. Most times you call a call center because you are upset. upset. Your card isn't working. Your account has been locked. A transfer doesn't go through. And they also have their own lives. Um, and so it helps them to deal with, with their issues, but also it helps them to appreciate where a customer is coming from to say, wait a minute. Let me think about this. It is a Friday evening. She does not have access to cash. This isn't about me doing something. This is about what does this crisis mean for her or him? So anybody, I think anybody, once you're working with people, children, adults, it's an excellent training to have. Um, okay. Do you see, based on the work that you do, do you see a large requirement to focus on males because males are the one based on what i see on tv committing crime shooting people raping women i'm i'm going to say this everybody has to be focused and i really focus on children i've always focused on children and young people and everybody needs to be focused however when it comes to males and i think this goes back to messaging when you as you just mentioned when you go on the news the males are just displayed or portrayed as perpetrators. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's either they're going to get, they're, they're going to be a victim of a violent crime or they're the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, um, it's not just black and white. In the same way women are so, you know, I think sometimes the emphasis on we need to focus on males because they're the ones doing the crime rather than we need to focus on males so they can achieve their full potential as well. It's not let me focus on a male to stop them from becoming a criminal. Right. It's let me give a male the opportunity to, uh, to achieve to his fullest. Um, so... But, but I do think there needs to be spaces for males to share with each other because there are unique challenges. So there are even some cases that all through my career that I just believe would be better served by a male. Not that I don't have the skills, but there is a connection with an older male. You know, the older male may be a counselor, but the young person may see a positive male figure. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes males see a lot of females in these positions. Most of their teachers yeah. are females. A lot of them, I don't, I don't have the statistics, but you know, if you go off of media, most of the households are headed by single mother households. But I think people would be surprised how many fathers are actively involved in their children's lives and 
how many single father households they are, mm -hmm. but you just don't hear about it. Don't hear about it. You know, so I do think both need to be focused on, but I think for the males, we really need to look at how do we describe them and what do the program seek to do? And I don't think just let me just do something so you don't become a criminal. That's not who they are. That's not all they are. You know, so. That's interesting. That's an interesting point that how the media may portray men continues to cycle even more. In some ways, I, I think, I, I don't know if it fully continues the cycle, but I definitely think it contributes to it because we know representation matters. Let's take something as simple as the Olympics. There are so many other sports in, in the Olympics. I mean, there are so many sports. Mm -hmm. But for every country, no matter what sport their country does, once that flag comes out, it's like, it matters. Yeah. You feel seen. You feel heard. Um, and I think when you have a message like that, it can... It kind of sends a message that this is almost what you're expected right. to do. This is almost expected of you. Um, so I don't think it's an intentional act. I don't think so. I just think it's how the messaging is done. Being, being very mindful mm -hmm. of, of how you describe it. And in some ways, asking is a healthy physically, emotionally, psychologically healthy individual likely to commit a crime? Probably not. So while it is important to report the news as you get it, I think it's important to also have the discussions as to why. Yeah. Why? What is happening with our males? What messages are they receiving? What support are are they getting and so forth because i think i think sometimes males feel silenced even look at women's day compared to men's day yeah you know i mean i think it's important that you know representation is there so there's something i always speak about right two things one in the medical passport that a child gets mm -hmm. father is not in it at all there's are you serious 100 percent there's mother's name, child's name, no father's name in there. Okay, that has basically, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get on a soapbox, <laughs> but that's basically sending a message yeah. to a child, to a mother, mm -hmm. and to the father that it is likely you are not going to be there, so yeah. there's not even a space for your name. Correct. And... Don't underestimate the power of a name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is... It's shocking. That is shocking. I, I was not aware that on the medical passport, it does not have a place for the father's name. And the other thing is, my daughter was sick some time ago, and we went to a hospital, and the, um, the receptionist, she took... I was speaking to her, and she took her information, took my wife's information... And I said, do you want to know my name? She was like, no, that's okay. And I thought to myself, I mean, again, that could just be her situation, her reality, her experience. No knock on her, but it just shows that if you go through society 
and you feel as if there's no place for you, it will impact how you feel about yourself if you take it on. Yeah, and and I think we have to recognize that when a system, you know, it's it's, it's one thing. I mean, it it's very harmful when it's society. You know, like it's it's just society feeling that way. But when a system um, actually is set up in a way, it it sends a message. You're formalizing it. In a way, you're you're formalizing it, and unfortunately, um, I I think that that could be why some fathers may be more quiet, may be less actively involved, because it could be they may not feel comfortable in in that space. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And it it's sad because the truth is, as I said, there are a number of single father households. There are several fathers who are pouring into to their children every day. In fact, COVID saw that a lot of fathers were staying home to help with childcare. Mm. A lot of them were staying home with childcare. And I think... It's a complex issue. Very complex. It's not yeah. it's not black and white. Yeah. But I think it's important to have these conversations, see how there is a system that may be saying, Oh, don't expect a father to be involved. Mm-hmm. Because even if a father is involved, if his child's medical passport doesn't even has his name have his name, he may wonder. Yeah. Well, does that mean I can't be a part of medical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. situations yeah. does that mean i'm going to be on the outside it raises a lot of questions um i wish it was black and white but yeah. we do just have to be very very careful about the messaging yeah you know that's very important it's it's scary and i don't think there's a simple fix and for me one of the things i wonder about is do we do we take enough time to speak about mental health or what can we do to take time to speak about mental health from children all the way up so people feel comfortable speaking about it like everything else i think one of the things is realizing the impact of mental health and everything else so in the training i lead on like one of the things i appreciated is that they have to understand how stress impacts it so they have to realize that stress, it's not just, oh, I feel tired. It affects productivity, motivation, increases illnesses and so forth. I think we need to focus on the fancy term is social and emotional learning. But really and truly, it comes down to let children know that feelings exist and that they're okay. Mm-hmm. Because even children... You say to them, how are you doing? I'm fine. Immediately. Yeah. I'm fine. And part of it is they don't have the vocabulary to tell how they're feeling. So then when something is the matter, they say, I feel a ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you mean you feel a ways? And depending on what is happening, a ways could be good. It could be bad. It's just so varied. So, and there are easy ways to do it. There's so many, well. There are more and more books yeah. um, that are really easy to read children's books. You know, it doesn't scream 
I'm going to teach you about emotion. <laughs> you know, it doesn't scream it. Yeah. So, you know, and parents can let their children know because children, children are very perceptive and they understand so much. They just don't necessarily have the language. Yeah. Um, so they can pick up when mommy is having a bad day. They can pick up when daddy is having a bad day. They know when grandma isn't feeling so well and being honest um, and say, you know, you're right. Um, I'm feeling a little sad today, you know, and sometimes I'll feel sad and sometimes I'll feel angry and give them situations so they can understand, oh, so when my ice cream fell, it was okay for me to cry. That's another thing. We have to stop. We have to stop telling people don't cry because crying is cathartic. It, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a mechanism to allow you to release the emotion and we need to be we need to stop being afraid of crying. I mean, I'm a crier. I'm happy. I ball. I'm <laughs> angry. I ball. I'm sad. I ball. Um, but emotions are okay. And another thing we have to let them know that emotions like sadness, anger, worry, frustrations are real. They're valid. And they have a place in life. Yeah. You're going to get angry if somebody hits you at school. You may get angry and then you can begin to then, you know, share with them how they can recover from those emotions. Also, you know, when mommy feels sad, she may cry for a bit, but then um, she may drink a cup of tea and talk about how they can also make themselves feel better. But it just starts with having conversations about it. And it could be as simple as, how are you doing today? Having a chart in your child's room where yeah. they have like a face with the emotion and you yeah, ask, yeah. how are you feeling today? And they put it up. And then before they go to bed, how are you feeling tonight? Because that also helps parents to know when, hmm, she's not feeling that great or he's not feeling that great before bed. Maybe we should have a little conversation as to what is going on. Because a lot of children hold it in. So I think what's so what you're saying is very interesting. So I have been on a journey of reassessing past events, mm -hmm. right? Because I think as humans we register the emotion, but we don't register or we don't remember the, maybe the cause of the emotion. Right. So mm -hmm. when something happened, I was angry. So I you know, relate anger to this particular situation. And if you sit down and you reassess what the cause was at a later stage in life, maybe two years later, 10 years later, you realize that maybe get a fresh perspective of what happened. And therefore, your emotion may change because you may understand it. So for example, a child may be angry because their parent didn't give them something. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, you realize that they probably couldn't afford it. And so it changes how you think about the situation. And so I, I say this in the view of there are going to be parents out there or adults out there who they were never told to speak about emotion. So therefore, the concept of speaking to a child about emotion is a whole retraining for them. And, and they don't have to sit back and reassess and unlearn all the stuff that they learned growing mm -hmm. up and relearn in order to teach their kids something hopefully new, hopefully better. And how many of us as adults are comfortable with tearing apart what we know to be true, mm -hmm. to, to be mm -hmm. vulnerable to ourselves? And that's difficult. 
And you know, the, the great thing is um, more and more there are resources coming out to help parents with just that. Um, one of the popular ones is the Big Life Journal. A lot of parents sign on to that. And it's a, my, my dream is to make it J- Jamaicanized. Okay. Um, and it's basically focused on talking about emotions, helping children to understand emotions, processing them and so forth. It also helps to build important skills like resiliency and confidence and how to resolve challenges and so forth. So there are resources like that. Um, Big Life is nice because it's like worksheets. It's like activities. It's like painting. It's like a little bit of writing. It's, it's, it's really activity-based. And it's interesting you say, you know, as an adult, you then realize X, Y, Z, when the truth is we don't give children enough credit that they can understand um, when mommy doesn't have money. And I say that to say so many children all through my career, the parents will be like, they don't have a clue what's happening. As in the parents think the child don't have a clue. And the child comes in and they unload everything the parent has shared like everything um so the saying if a parent isn't okay the child won't be okay is really true Mm. because a child picks up this is your child they 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 have a connection with Mm. you um also children are very good eavesdroppers (laughs) if you ever want to know a government secret in a classified place a child in the building they are excellent eavesdroppers and they hear things yeah. and they understand things. And I think we, we have to give them that credit. So a lot of people are like, oh, you have to talk to them, baby talk. Mm-mm. You, you, you don't have to do the baby talk. You just simplify your language. Yeah. You know, so if, if a toddler is doing something and like, I'll use an example. My nephew during, during the pandemic was at my house a lot and he was always in the yard because it was like fun for him to have like a huge yard and don't have to worry about cars and everything. And he kept jumping off of something and there was one time he slipped. Mm-hmm. I was able to catch him and I said, you know, I tell you what, you can't jump anymore. And he looked sad and he looked frustrated and I said, I know it's very, it's very sad. You can't jump anymore, but this is why, you know, and then I showed another, like he had a boo-boo mm-hmm. and he couldn't say cut. So I was right. like, you know, look, you remember you got the boo-boo and it hurt. You can't jump on it because you'll get another boo-boo and then it will hurt. Surprise, surprise. He looks on me and says ice cream. And then it clicked. He doesn't really care about getting hurt. Because it leads to ice cream. <laughs> he was two. He was two. And I just looked at him and said, you are too smart for your own good. You ain't getting ice cream. Um, but I use it as an example to say at two, he was thinking about, hmm, do I really care if I get hurt? Because yeah. that leads to ice cream. Yeah. So then... I had to say to him, you know, there are sometimes you get hurt and ice cream doesn't make it feel better. So, Auntie says no, but choose another activity. And then I gave him two choices. So, 
as he got older, he began to do self-talk all on his own. So if he was getting frustrated, he's like, you're okay, you're okay, take your time. And it's because we gave him that, I mean, we're, we're not perfect with it, I'm not going to lie, but we were intentional about helping him to get the language. So he just started big school. Boy, disgrace us. Like, just, I'm done with you. Goodbye. Leave. He was fine. Yeah. He was fine. Go about your business. I'm good. You coming back for me? All right. Of course, it hurt his parents a lot. Cause, <laughs> but it's because he, he was secure in knowing what happens. And it can be as simple as that. You're going to school. This is your teacher. We will pick you up. And if they ask again, tell them. We will pick and let them know the emotion they're feeling is fine. Yeah. It's like I would be sad too if I was doing something I enjoyed and I was told that to stop. So not being afraid to just take a moment and explain it. So if a parent is in the situation where a child wants something and they don't have money, like say, you know, I'm sorry, but daddy can't get it for you today because I have to buy dinner. Let, give them something they know. Yeah. You know, and say, if I get this for you, you won't be able to get dinner tonight. Right. Um, and have them ask questions and explain it as simple, as simple as possible. Um, because they know and they take it on and then they have reactions where they're beginning to think about, well, how do I get money? Mm. And then unfortunately... It leaves them at risk because I know their parents need money. Yeah. There's not a conversation. And so they may go elsewhere to figure it out. So it can be as simple as that. How do, so how do, par how do parents who don't have the current skill set to have those kind of conversations, where can they go to get help? What can they read? I think going to the school. Um, is a good first start. Um, letting them know, you know, I am interested. I do realize, you know, I don't have certain skills um, and I want to learn more about parenting. Um, I think it's important to maybe talk to other parents, find out, because sometimes when you're going through something, you tend to feel like you're alone. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, developing a network of parents to share uh, concerns. Um, another thing with the advent of like social media and, you know, really relying on virtual communication, there are actually quite a bit. I'm, it, I didn't even know myself, but I realized that a number of parents I know are part of international parenting groups okay. um, and they literally just type it in and they may be connected to like a reputable like hospital or so forth um, another thing is talking to your doctor the the child's pediatrician yeah um, and as I said big life journal is another one um, because it's easy because it's kind of a pre-made um, worksheet but not only that they they really explain it in a very, very simple way. Um, and 
I think just keep asking for help. If you have access to a psychologist, reach out to a psychologist. So um, we did some work recently with parents. And while I could deliver a session, because I have the skill set and I can read a manual and deliver it, sometimes getting support from another parent is more impactful than getting it from a professional. But I think the first step is admitting it. I need help. And reaching out to what's at your hand. Check with the school. Check with the pediatrician. Check with the clinic. Um, go online. See, see if there are support groups. Um, COVID has definitely taught us. Sometimes you put a status and you have a request. And you're flooded yeah. <laughs> with, with resources. Yeah. So I think that that's one way. But the first step is admitting it. And parents have to remember you don't have a baby and them give you a manual at least i don't know anybody who <laughs> had a child and they got a manual no sorry um and i think it's important to a realize you have your own history and that's important to give weight to the fact that you have yeah. your own history yeah and realize that you are learning as you go along but you're not alone um and I think we really have to. The only way we're going to get through this thing called life is working together. You can't shame another parent. You know, like you don't know their struggles. You don't know their history. It's better to say, I hear you. I see you're having a hard time. Again, this is where, you know, just being in tune is this mother or father responding because I'm just wicked and evil and just don't love them picnic? Or A, do they know no other way? B, are their emotions high? And so they're, they're responding to that. So recognize it. Seek out support. And really and truly support each other and listen to each other. I'm not a parent, but the parents I've spoken to say some of the most impactful help has been from other parents who have yeah. gone through it. I think that you have to be vulnerable first. And that's, that's what hits other people. They're afraid. They're like, so if I let this person know that I'm struggling here or my child is struggling here, what does that make me look like? And it's a kind of get over yourself and realize that that's irrelevant. Everybody has issues. Everybody has concerns. And all you can do is be the best you you can be. And the truth is that the concern is real. It's, it's a real concern. And the truth is not everybody shows empathy. Not everybody shows understanding. Not everybody shows judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, shows a lack of judgment. Mm-hmm. Many persons judge. Um, and it, it, it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. But... We really need, the first step is demonstrating empathy because that allows you to put yourself real and truly in somebody else's shoes. And being able to do that, you're able to step out of yourself and really recognize that, wait a minute, I'm coming at this from how I would do it, but I have access to X, Y, Z. They don't. You know, when, when I think about it, it is stressful to get ready in the morning to go on the road. And I drive my own car. Mm-hmm. 
But imagine if you had to get up, get kids ready, get them on an early bus because if they don't catch the first bus, Mm -hmm. you're not sure when the next bus is going to come or the next bus. Right. Then you have to make sure that you feel comfortable putting them on the bus that shows up. Then you have to get your own self to work. Some parents have to seriously think about, God, don't make anything happen on the road as my child is going to. I mean, there there's so many. So when a parent like that says, I'm just so exhausted and I'm so frustrated, why judge and say, oh, you need to be organized? They've run a marathon while you have run a sprint. Right. Their 9 a.m. is different from your 9 a.m. Very different. You know, very, very different. And their concerns may be very different because maybe a parent, a parent has to put their child in the trust of somebody else yeah. to get them to where, where they need to go. Or maybe a parent doesn't have a close-knit group of friends. Um, I think about teenage parents. Sometimes they get isolated because, you know, they were a teen parent and, mm-hmm. you know, things happen. Um, so we really have to be more empathetic. And that, it goes back to mental health is not just disorders. Being able to show empathy shows a sign of mental health and emotional health and emotional intelligence to realize that hey, not everybody will approach something the way I do. Um, And I think about this show, New Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. I found it recently. I never watched it before, (laughs) but I found it on Netflix. And the main character, I think he's like the resident or the Mm -hmm. medical director or whatever in the hospital. And he always says, how can I help? That was like his signature line. And it stood out because the first episode you find out he's battling cancer. Mm -hmm. Then the last episode of the first season, his wife dies in a car accident. But he still kept saying, how can I help? That's a very important question. Sometimes we feel we know the answer someone is looking for. Or we think we know the right solution to a problem. But if you say, how can I help? It gives a person space to tell you what they need in that moment. They may say, I don't know yet. That's where good listening comes on your own because you could be like, you know, you spoke about your child going to school. You know, I pass your house every single day. Would it make it easier if I pick up your child and drop them home. So it's empathy, being able to recognize someone else's situation, taking a step back, you don't know all the answers, and saying, how can I help? And then listening, really listening without judgment, so you can get clues as to what they may need in terms of help and support. You know what's interesting, and, and I'm probably reaching here, but some of us, maybe half of us, or most of us, we we do that with children, right? So if a child is going through something, we, 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 we care about what the child is going through, we ask them if they're okay. For some reason, when we relate to another adult, all of that care and empathy goes through the door. It's like we assume that every adult 
has sense or has the exact same background that we have and should understand. And if we could just put the same empathy we give a child to an adult, it'd be a whole different world. And it's it's funny you say that. Um, it's sometimes we don't give children enough credit, but sometimes we also don't don't give adults enough grace. Yes. So I've had so many persons say to me, "You're a psychologist. Figure it out." And I'm like, being a psychologist does not automatically mean my life is red and yellow roses and green pastures and birds singing. It's not a sound of music mm. um, immediately. And, and that's the truth. Um, so it's giving each other more grace. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I use my profession as an example because the truth is all day or for much of the day, I may be listening to someone's heavy, heavy load. Um, and to be effective, you have to be present. You really have to be present, and that weighs on you. And the thought that because you're a psychologist, you know all the answers is not really fair. Because the truth is, your mental health, because you're taking on, like yeah. you're, you're, you're being present, you are, you're taking it on, so... In our best practices, as in in our code of conduct and professional ethics and practices, it recommends you have your own psychologist. But even in my profession, people don't give me grace. They're like, you should figure it out or you should know. The truth is, once emotions come in, get get involved, no matter how much training, (laughs) once there's strong emotions... There, there's going to be some challenges there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so for a regular person, it's not even their background. It's not even their sense. It's, it's this thought that you're an adult. You're supposed to have it together. Yeah. Um, are you forgetting that I am living through a pandemic? Like, have you forgotten that? Mm-hmm. Um, are you forgetting that I may be at a job that is extremely stressful? Maybe there are unrealistic um, expectations. So we don't give children enough credit. We don't give adults enough grace to, to realize that, especially if you're responsible for other people, that's a whole other level. Because it's not just you. Yeah. And sometimes, once you're in the role of support or carer or caregiver or once you're in a role that, and this is everybody when you really think about it, you have to take on responsibility or help with somebody else, it's going to be overwhelming. Yeah. It's it's going to be overwhelming. Um, And we need to just... Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you've never gone through a hard time, show up at my office. Mm. Like, tell me what you did to avoid every single challenge. Yeah. It's you know? impossible. It's impossible. It's, it's impossible. Every day. It, and it could be something slight. But just recognize that what may be small for you could be big for somebody else yeah 
you know, for somebody being told they have to miss a day of work may not impact the monthly paycheck. Right. But for somebody being told they have to miss an hour of work could mean a huge chunk of a paycheck disappears. It impacts the end tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And you also don't know what's happening behind closed doors because, again, we're all taught don't air your business on yeah. front streets. So people are fighting battles, literally fighting battles behind closed doors, and they feel, I cannot ask for help. Now, I'm not saying broadcast your business, but, <laughs> but they don't have a network of support. So I have a, I have, a, yes, that's very true, mm-hmm. right? But I also, I, not but, I know it's not easy. I would love to eradicate that. And I say that because I always say to people, if you drive on any road or walk on any road and you walk past 10 houses, 10 out of 10 houses have something going on in there, right? Chances so, are, I mean, I, I don't know the, the statistics, but on some level, on there, some there, level. there may be something happening. And so why is it, why is it that we're so trained to keep our business private where if you were to, again, not broadcast it, but if you were to just lean on somebody else, we probably realize that we aren't alone. Because I'm a firm believer that when you, when you feel alone is when you're most impacted. There's so many things that happen in our lives that are less severe than something else. But because it's normalized, we feel okay. And the less severe thing, which is taboo, we feel is horrible. I, I mean, that's a very difficult question. I know, I know. And it's, it's not a simple answer, but mm-hmm. I, I think of it, and I'll use some example, examples how I think about it. Medicine today in 2022 is not the medicine it was in like 1870. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took, for some things, it took centuries for them to figure out, actually, that's not what you're supposed to be yeah. doing. Or having a name for something. Mm-hmm. Um, and psychology, the field of psychology, when, when you look at it compared to other professions, it's still relatively new. Um, and it's very complex because, as I said, your mental health affects you physically. So you may go to a doctor for a physical um, ailment and you treat the physical ailment or you can't figure out why the physical ailment is not going away. And then it's not until a while later you realize, oh, wait, wait a minute. We're now hearing a lot of people talking about, oh, it may be stress related Mm -hmm. because we know for a fact stress affects us. Um, And it's good. It's good to see that link. But we're still, I think the field... The conversations are still relatively new. Yeah. But I think COVID presented, I've, I've seen almost like an explosion of conversations. And it was because we began to realize, hey, mental health maybe is more important than we think it is because you realize what isolation does to you. Yeah. You realize how it brings up certain feelings. You could be fine before COVID and then just that lockdown and you're just like, what's happening? And I always joke and say, well, why do you think they use solitary confinement? 
Correct. As, as a punishment because you literally can lose a grip on what you define as your reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of it is the conversations are still new. And also mental health is not as black and white. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really not black and white. Um, and it can be manifested in so many different ways. And um, I think it's going to take time. I think it's going to take research. But we've made strides. Um, I wish we were at the point of moving beyond just saying it's okay to not be okay and really, <laughs> you know, really emphasizing, yeah. you know, what to do. Um, but, but that's my thought. I don't have any empirical evidence, yeah. but I always say to myself, when you think about it, medicine is what, one of the oldest professions and look how long it took them to pick up certain things. Yeah. It's the same thing with mental health and it's even more difficult because yeah. somebody may come with a physical <laughs> And if you notice, I said psychosocial support, because the truth is mental health is psychological, emotional, cognitive, social. It's everything. It's everything in one. Um, And I think we really have to work hard on the stigma. And that's international. Yeah. There's still a lot of stigma because, again, mental health is seen as if you're suffering with your mental health, you're mad. Yeah. I hate that term. Yeah. Or actually you're sick. When the truth is poor mental health may be I am struggling to get out of bed. Like, do you know that burnout is seen as a physical yeah. um, condition as it were? Mm-hmm. But it's also recognized as it can be emotional and a mental condition and another word for it particularly with like the serve um the social service professions is that it's called compassion fatigue wow that's that's another they they don't use it as much because burnout is becoming more widely recognized accepted spoken about but there was a period they called it compassion fatigue because it was just a recognition that carers support service personnel they give every day and the truth is it's not just it affects everybody burnout affects paramedics burnout affects police you can have burnout professionally you just burnt out i was speaking to a friend of mine and she said that after she quit her job she was working the same amount of hours on her own business but her physical aim has disappeared because the the job she was doing was just mentally demanding and it wasn't mentally where she wanted to be and she, it was manifesting physically. Um, earlier spoke about call center persons. I think that's interesting because we're putting, again, thank God for the BPO industry, people are employed, I think it's great. Mm-hmm. But we're putting 17-year-olds in a call center and I don't know if they are or not, but are, are we supporting them mentally because... I can't imagine getting probably a hundred calls a day where somebody telling one bag of bad word. How do you cope at seventeen? How do you go home? How do you eat lunch with your friends? I can I can say that some BPOs have put I, I can say this. Mm-hmm. We still have a long way to go, but I do have to give credit where credit is due due. More and more businesses are looking at either having a consultant or 
ensuring if they do provide insurance more and more are making sure insurance covers some sessions Got you. um there is employee assistance programs that are becoming more and more popular mm-hmm. um but i think it will be a process i think it will be a process and even part of building your mental health is building your capacity building your skills um, improving your access to resources because the truth is you're not going to be okay every day mm-hmm. they're going to come a day where the coping strategies that usually work don't work and you need the access to services so it's like it's many layers first you have to recognize i'm having an issue then you have to be able to address the issue like you have to try what can I do? How can I cope? How can I manage these feelings, these thoughts? How can I manage it? And then at the third level, realizing, okay, I need some help. And I think that's a piece we really need to work on. And also recognize that it's not just a psychologist or a counselor. If somebody is hungry, like, that's their primary thing. Like, they're yeah. bawling, they're hungry, and that's their main stressor. There's nothing I can do in a session that is going to be as effective as meeting that need. Yeah. Ignoring the need is dangerous. So, a lot of people think, oh, you go to counseling and everything goes. You see that root cause is still there? and you don't address that root cause, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. your success is going to be diminished. You know, so it's recognizing what is happening, responding appropriately, and referring where necessary. So even as a mental health professional, I have to be okay with referring. Mm -hmm. There are going to be some cases, I am four foot 10, (laughs) I'm a very tiny person. There are certain situations where I have to say, I am not the best person for this. Mm -hmm. A lot lot of people don't know this. I was placed one place for my practicum. I won't name Mm -hmm. where I was placed. And my supervisor at the location said, yeah, you too cute for this. And requested a different placement. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember going to my practicum supervisor. I was hopping mad. I felt insulted. No? Thank God. (laughs) Because I would not have been effective. I would not have been effective in that space. And no matter what profession you do, no matter what it is you do, you have to be okay to say, this is not my forte. I don't have the experience. Let me send it to somebody who does that's interesting because you know i was about to ask you will we ever get to a point where somebody can call into your manager and say you know what i'm not feeling well today and the manager asks oh what's going on they're like i'm just not feeling up to it not say that my daughter's sick my foot's sick my car is sick just saying i'm not mentally ready for work today and your manager saying you know what i understand take a day for yourself because we're not there We've made some strides mm-hmm. because um, 
maybe not as many locally this and again i don't have the data so i don't mm. want to say you know i know what percentage of yeah. companies but i do know for a fact um that there has been some movement um where leadership in a company i've actually seen one company do it locally again i don't have the data for the mm-hmm. percentages but i've seen one and it was in a benefits package a person had just started and their days are broken down into vacation days sick days personal slash mental health days nice. and good. it was actually written um in in black and white and i appreciated that they wrote it as personal mm. versus mental health days yeah. because it recognized that there are just some days you can't give to a company you have to focus on what's happening personally yeah so yeah. for me i'm a i live with elderly parents and there's sometimes like at the drop of a hat like oh can you take me here and I'm like, did you not know about it and i think the more we have conversations about it the more for me the more we break down what it is yeah. i think it will be a big different difference because just today a person said to me you sure you're a psychologist you don't act like a psychologist and i said why and i said you don't use no holy for big word <laughs> but it's true when when you do an assessment and you get it sometimes there's so many big words like weak abstract reasoning visual um is a visual learner um is unable to see the links between when you explain it like that what does that mean in english like seriously mm-hmm. what does that mean in english what's abstract reasoning can can you define what abstract reasoning is It's basically being able to see how two seemingly unrelated concepts are connected. Yeah. So it's basically making connections. That's that's a lot of what abstract reasoning is. Critical thinking is problem solving, decision making, you know, being able to look at a problem, explore different alternatives and reaching a solution. So I think our language has to change. a lot of time i think just talk simple i think that goes across every profession for some True. reason we believe that if i speak in it jargon it means i know more it versus sometimes it's that the skill set to me if we're able to break down a complex or or a, a non native issue to somebody that means that you're probably better skilled than you thought you are If you're going to speak in IT jargon to a non-IT person and you can't break it down, maybe you don't really understand what the problem is and and you you know the big terms but you can't really explain it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's something a lot of us we struggle with is we may know the top level or the high level but can we actually explain it? And I've even over the years like whenever I'm putting together resources or content like I there there's a particular um person i always reach out to and i'm like read this for me like read it for me and tell me what i need to do to break it down even more Be- because the truth is 
I'm going to write for a high level just just because that's what I've been doing mm. for most of, you know, like writing high level. Mm. But certain work experiences has taught me that sometimes the most effective I am is um, is being as simple as possible. And I got the first taste of it when I was assessing. Um, and I remember reading a report. A mom brought a report for me to kind of break down. And then it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I get it. It's, it's, it's too complex. It's, too it's complex. like social emotional learning. <laughs> what is that? It's yeah. being able to name your emotions. It's being able to recognize your emotions. It's being able to know how to process your emotions or manage them. And socially, how to have healthy relationships and interactions with others. I mean, that's a very simplified definition, but that's a lot of but it. But it works. That's a lot of it. There's something you said earlier about the different emotions because this may be uh, a true statement or just my recollection, right? Mm -hmm. But when I was growing up, I only knew some colors, right? Roy G. Biv, right? Mm -hmm. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue. That, that's it. That's all I knew. I'm still struggling with the rest of the colors. And then, no, I'm seeing my daughter talk about that kind of random stuff. Fuchsia, if, yeah, random things, right? And, <laughs> and I think it's the same with emotions, you know. We're told about angry, sad, happy. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there are a whole bunch of other things in between. And... and and if you're unable to express those minute differences or details, mm -hmm. then you're stuck. In some ways, you do get stuck. And that's why talking about emotions is so important. Because, for instance, some people do honestly just know sad, angry, happy. Mm -hmm. But then frustration, when you really think about it, it's not really anger. Um, disappointment is not really um fair it's different from worried yeah you know and helping them to understand like rage is different from i'm just angry um and there's so many tools out there to, to help with even that i mean you plug it into google um i use a tool in my trainings called a feeling thermometer okay. and it's literally colors some faces and some numbers and i say you can tell me the number you can tell me the word you can tell me which face or you can tell me the color four different ways of communicating to me your feeling and then i ask for those persons who are in the red can you help me understand which one is it rage is it this is it that and it allows them to even adults to realize, you know, maybe I'm not in that zone. I'm not feeling rage. I'm actually feeling this. And using tools like that are a good way to start the conversation because you're not putting any pressure. Um, there are a lot of games now, a lot of online videos, which are games where kids get to like show, show me your anger face, grr, and then show me your sad face. And it helps the kids to be able to see the full um, extent. It could be as simple as a mirror. Yeah. Having a child lo look at their face. Because some of us, myself included, if, we're, if we have 
a blank face. Mm-hmm. We have RBF. <laughs> <laughs> so the people just immediately go, oh, you're upset. Yeah. And it even helps you to be in tune with, huh, is my RBF me really and truly having an anger face? And so looking at it. Interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because people say, I can read your emotion over your face. If you recognize that you can read someone's emotion just by their face, then it means you can recognize emotions when they say mm. it. Which is when they actually name it. Yeah. So it's a, it's a complex thing. It will be a while. <laughs> but the fact that there is like a big life journal the fact that there's a lot more conversations about it. I think the fact that there are podcasts like this, um, I think is important. I really think is important. But at the same time, I think we all need to stay in our lane as we talk about this. And I think that's part of the frustration that some people, well-meaning, over-inflate their skills. And... It can cause problems. We yes. all have to keep ourselves accountable and stay in our lane. I'm not a boxing coach, so I'm not going to go teach boxing. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So it's recognizing that as well. So you're focusing on these things now. What do you see yourself doing in the next two or five years? <sighs> Sean, why you ask me that? <laughs> you know, I've been asking myself that more recently. Um, not because I'm unhappy, but just because I'm like, where do you see yourself two, five years? Um, one, I'm going to ride the train I'm on as long as I possibly can. Um, (laughs) just because I really, it came at the right time and it reminded me of the work I did when I first started. Um, I've always worked with the population I've worked with here and overseas i always seem to end up in this so like i really believe this is what i'm supposed to be doing yeah two five years where do i two to five years where do i see myself one i will have successfully gotten psychological first aid into every every ministry or as many ministries onboarding orientation induction ongoing professional development plan um particularly ministries i've had more interactions with like that is it i believe in it that much that i would love to see this training become in the same way you do medical first aid yeah Yeah. in the same way you have to do the employee handbook i really believe i want to see there so that's one thing i want to see it built in and if other organizations wanted, hey, <laughs> but I'd want to start there because I think when a state level agency does something, kind of like, whoa, mm-hmm. this, this may be pretty serious. Um, another thing I would love to be able to say I'm doing is actually helping to implement policy or developing policy like being in a position to make some decisions not just advocating i really would like to transition to a place where i'm at that table and i'm informing decisions um 
I think that those are the two big things. Yeah. I think I think that would be like coming full circle for me because that's what I've a lot of people don't know this. That's where I always wanted to end up. I really always wanted to inform policies, especially as they relate to the young people in this country. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If you enjoyed it and you want to dive into a similar What Next episode, check out the links in the podcast description or head to the whatnextpodcast.com. And remember, make it your mission to make somebody else's day better. <laughs>